Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brad from Heinemann. It's been said that poetry and physics are the same thing. So on today's Heinemann podcast, we're examining the poetry of science. Language and literature can work in the same way science does. Both literature and science have stability and change, and both have cause and effect. In their book, Sharing Books, Talking Science, this is what authors Valerie Bong Jensen and Mark Lubkowitz call cross-cutting concepts. In today's conversation, they're joined by author Amy Ludwig Vanderwater, poet and author of Poems or Teachers. They've come together to explore how different lenses can help us to better understand complicated concepts. Our journey to this conversation is an interesting one. We start the podcast by learning how these authors' ideas intersect. Three of us met when we were at NCT. Actually, Amy and Valerie already knew each other. Because Valerie's I, my professor. Amy was my student. <laughs> and I had never met Amy, but we went to her session on poetry and how to write poetry. And she said something that really resonated with us. And she said, one of the suggestions that she gives to kids is when they're stuck is make a list and add a twist. And as a scientist, one of the things um, that we look for are stable patterns that then instantly move into change. And I thought, wow, that's sort of what the tension that she's building by with that suggestion is by creating a pattern, something that's expected. And then by introducing something that's unexpected, you grab the reader's attention. And so I thought, wow, there's stability and change across cutting concepts from science being used as a writing craft in poetry. Well, in both of your books, you each talk about reading like a writer, reading like a scientist. How are these kinds of reading similar, but how are they also different? One thing I would say is I'm I'm married to a scientist and read Katie Ray's Wondrous Words several times many, many years ago when it first came out. And I read it several times because it took a while for me to be able to see writing in a different way. Like someone could explain something to me about this is a metaphor and I would understand it. But then this idea of reading like a writer coming to see all writing is possibility for one's own writing was a new idea. Now, science, when I read Mark and Valerie's book, I don't think like a scientist. My husband does. I don't see the world as a scientist, but reading their book now twice, I still need to get that third and fourth time in until I really feel like I'm truly understanding it. I I'm starting to hear the squeaky creak of my brain beginning to understand things in terms of systems or patterns or, you know, beyond writing. It's interesting how somewhere in the book, they say, when you learn to see the world like a scientist, it's like having a different collection of eyeglasses. And what struck me about that is the next part of what they wrote, which was that these glasses, these lenses aren't additive but rather synergistic. And that idea of the more you see things in a different way, the more everything is connected in a different way. It's fascinating to me how much these things over years, my husband and I have said, wow, it's sort of like writing. Wow, it's sort of like science. <laughs> and now reading this book, I kind of actually understand a little bit about what you said that. Like Amy, I don't have any training as a scientist. When I met Mark, I realized that he saw things differently, and including literature. And, and I kind of wanted to try on his lenses or his glasses in that way. And the more that I did, the more I realized these concepts are a lot like writer's craft moves. When you think about structure, and Amy writes about this so beautifully in her book, is what kind of poem 
does she want to write that day? And she has so many different examples. And the structure that she chooses really is a craft move. And it helps her accomplish a certain function. I mean, to place this conversation in time, we've just had that really horrific shooting at a Florida high school. And Amy wrote, I, I read many, many pieces, opinion pieces, and Amy wrote this powerful poem that I've posted and shared. It's been shared and shared from a child's perspective, hiding in a classroom. And that structure that she chose achieved the function of communicating from a different perspective. And especially we're hearing from high school students, but this was the perspective of an elementary child. And so I thought, even though this is a science concept, her poem shows so beautifully how it applies and how I can understand it in poetry. And Brett, you're asking about thinking and reading like a scientist. So scientists follow a certain structure for communicating. And and in our conversation, sort of, we've come to this realization that when we communicate just as writers, we actually follow a similar structure, but the language is different. So for example, in, as we talk about in our book, um, when we refer to cause and effect, we could also call that plot in a different context, right? Or if, when we talk about systems or system models in science, we could just call that setting in a different context. And we look at a piece of writing, writers do, and ask, how is this working? How did the author make us feel this way? What is the structure that served the function of me feeling sad? Or what did the author do with words that caused me to have a new look at something old? And I think what's interesting about that is in Poems Are Teachers, I talk about how you can look at a poem. It's short. A poem is on one page, so you can study it easily. Whereas what I think is interesting about the comparison to science is some of these science things are not as immediately visible. So we have an investigation, you know, that it's it's like a, a journey to figure out like, how does this system of the beehive work? And it's not like you can just look at it and say, oh, there it is. You know, but it's an interesting uncovering of structure or an uncovering of how the cause creates the effect. And it's fascinating how much alike it all is. Well, and when we study writing, you know, we're, we're really looking at the structure and the system of the writing in place. And Mark, how, that's so similar to how we how we study science, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, but I remember mean, having this conversation this morning. I was reading one of my, um, something that my 11-year-old had written. So he likes to start off with a stable system, as many authors do. So, you know, this is his journal. It's like four-page little short story. And then he throws that system into change, and which is a very common technique of a lot of writers. But from an 11 year old's point of view, he blows up the system. And then everybody dies. And I'm like, wow, that's sort of how you can resolve this story, you know? And it usually involves some science fiction and fantasy at that point. And then if you read closely, what he does is he brings in either new energy or matter or magic, which is a form of energy matter, I guess you could argue, in some form to then bring the system back to stability. And so it is very much like science. I, I've got a stable pattern, then it gets disrupted. But something caused it to be disrupted. It has to be energy or matter. So he brought in new characters. They did something. And now the system is stable again. And what I said to Mark, what that made me think about in terms of the science concepts is how writers automatically choose a scale in which this is happening. So Xander is zooming way out and compressing, you know, the, everybody on the island and everybody blowing up and everybody dying. You know, recently there's been a push in a lot of writers workshops about helping children see how they can slow it down. And they talk about exploded moments. And that's a way of changing scale 
as a writer's move from something that happens start to finish to really looking deeply into one moment. And so scale that scientists use all the time, you know, is their system the universe or is it a cell? And writers use that too. And will I write about a whole day or will I write about no, I like just the, putting the pepperoni slices on the pizza to help grandma? But I was thinking about both of you yesterday and the conversation we had before about a piece of writing being a system. The question of, is a poem a system? And we were talking before about how there is a defined boundary. There are intersecting, you know, interacting components within it. These are words, these are phrases. And then as I was thinking about more, I wanted to ask you, do you feel if a poem is a system, is the reader's intent and background when a reader comes to a poem, is that energy that flows through that system? Because they say that a piece of writing isn't a piece of writing until there's a reader, right? And every piece of writing has a different reader or any piece of writing can have many readers and different readers bring different energy to that system of the poem. So what do you think about that? That's a really great question. I mean, it's a really, it's a really profound question. You know, I think there's a couple different levels at which you could look at it, right? So you as the writer have energy that you're trying to put into the system and you're, I'm guessing you're trying to elicit a response in the reader, but you don't know who the reader is. And you don't know, you know, what they're bringing to the table and what their lens is when they're reading it. And so and I imagine that's part of the, the rewarding and, and the beauty part of it, right? Because, it, you know, they then add to the experience. So it makes me think of um, Louise Rosenblatt and her theory about reading as a transaction in her book, The Reader, the Text, the Poem, which is she's using poem in a different sense that the reader's bringing something. The text is there, and together that transaction creates a poem. And literally here, we're talking about your poetry. So I think that if you expand the idea of system from just the poem on the page and make the boundary be that poem and include the reader, then there's that transaction, there's that energy going on, and they are the interacting components. Because like the tree falling in the forest, you know, if there's just text on on paper without a reader, then there's no energy going, no energy transfer, no, no interaction. So here's where I'm getting stuck is because um, I think metaphorically, absolutely. Yes. And literally I'm trying to figure out what's the form of energy that's moving from text to the reader. And so I'm, I'm in the brain right now thinking about neurons and if that, and if electrical impulses. You're going scale. Here. So I'm going scale. Yes. Right. Metaphorically. Absolutely. Right. Like none of us are the same after we've read something powerful. What about the energy that the writer's putting into the words? What about the energy that's coming out of that person and the moment of the energy of the writer. What about that? So I think there's energy that's transferred metaphorically, but not literally, you know? So, so like when I'm speaking, there's energy that's being transferred literally coming into your eardrum, for example, and that's how you can hear. But when I'm reading off of a text, I mean, I guess there's light energy coming in my eyes, but that didn't come from. <laughs> <laughs> but here's a question. Okay, so I'm going to ask a question then. Okay, Mark. So on page 83 of your book, <laughs> you have, um, at the bottom, there's a box that says, is it love or is it chemistry? Oh, yeah. And it says systems have what scientists call emergent properties. These are effects that cannot be predicted, even if we know the behaviors of the components in advance. And then it goes on. For example, humans are made primarily of six elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus. We know a lot about these elements and how they react. Can we use this understanding to predict how a system, the human, will function or behave? However, even understanding these six elements won't allow us to predict that seven-year-old Lars likes to skip at recess. Life itself is an emergent property because the behaviors and characteristics of organisms cannot be predicted from their interacting components, which means love is really more than chemistry. 
Yes. <laughs> I love that part of the book. I thought, oh my gosh, there's magic. I love, to, I love to say in my class, I walk into my gen bio class and I say more or less that I say, you know, okay, so we know a lot about carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. And none, none of that would ever allow you to predict love quiz. And then I raise, <laughs> you know, and it's true. There's some merger properties that the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so you can't. You so can, that's where the reader system poem yeah. writer interaction. So you can deconstruct and, and probably I imagine, you know, when you're reading something really closely, you can deconstruct it to a certain level and still there's more than that. And there's the, I'm going to mispronounce it, the je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. Yeah. That, that. Well, and that's the, when there's, I think you can have a piece of writing that is very technically perfect, yet doesn't have that je ne sais quoi quality. I always think of, uh, if I read something like that, I think, okay, that's a verse. And But when there's that little beyond love, chemistry, magic twinkle in it, then to me, that's where it advances the writing to poem from verse to poem is in that nameless quality. Yeah. What stays with you long after you read it, like like the poem I was describing. And and I think it's moving beyond poetry a little bit, but I think that the whole what we would call postmodern picture books are trying to get at is how to manipulate that je ne sais quoi a little bit. If you think about recent books like Press Here, where mm-hmm. It invites a different kind of participation, like physical manipulation of things to create an energy in that system of reader and book. And I think what you do so powerfully in your book is really offer readers and writers a way to look at ways of manipulating or crafting experience for whoever is going to be reading their poem. We were looking at um, on page 97 of your book, you give a tip on back and forth to compare and contrast. And the poem's called Seesaw. 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 That's a great visual image. You see, seesaw. I'm oh, up. my hiding mortars. Yeah. Yeah. I'm up. I grip. My feet are dangling. I'm down. I bump. My bones are jangling. And so we read that, and Valerie and I thought, well, there's two ways, depending upon scale, how you could look at that. So one is your system changing, oscillating back and forth between two states, right? Or you could say, oh, this is just part of the dynamic equilibrium. This is what happens when you're seesawing. Seesaw goes up and down, up and down. The playing with that idea of either the system, the dynamic equilibrium, or changing the system rapidly back and forth like a seesaw to generate interest by the reader. And it's familiar. That's the other thing. It's so comforting because it's a familiar pattern. That's what I was just going to say. This poem has a recognizable pattern. As soon as you read the first couple stanzas that Heidi wrote, you know where you're going in the next couple. And there's a comfort to that. Reading your chapter on pattern really made me think about books that I know. It made me think about books that I know in a different way and about how just even something as simple as when you wrote that some patterns we know from physical characteristics. And how do you know this is a Lego and not a button? That's a question you asked. And I think, wow, if what an interesting question. You just know it's a Lego. You know, my first thought is, well, you just know it is a Lego. I know what Legos are. But then to go beyond that, to ask the question, now suddenly I have to say, oh, Legos are shaped like this and they have these little circles on top. And suddenly now I'm identifying the characteristics of a Lego in a way that I never had before. And it made me think about how as a teacher, one of the things I see that happens with writing, sometimes writing is divided up into these little genres and we do this for a few weeks, we do this for a few weeks, we do this for a few weeks. But what gets lost and what can get lost is the bigger idea of how to notice these patterns, how to see how interlocking pieces 
pieces of words work together in a text beyond genre, like transcending, flying over genre. And reading your book, I felt that's the same. Like I, I have always thought of science as, oh, well, these are the things you have to know about this. And this is what you have to know about dissecting an earthworm. And there are these little parts, but not these big ideas of science. And I, as I read the book again, I thought, as a teacher, I could help students understand these concepts and fly above, you know, the content serves this way of thinking instead of just learn this pile of stuff, learn these terms, like learn what a metaphor is, learn what a photosynthesis is, but a way of seeing, it helped me understand. And then I thought, okay, so if I see the world like a writer and you see the world like scientists and we talk, then I could see the world a little more like you and you can see a little like me and we can go off and talk to artists and see how they see it and pile on another lens. And that Dr. Historian, that whole idea of the lenses being synergistic is enormously powerful to think of the possibilities of how I could continue to learn. We're playing with this idea. The um, the ways in which we see the world are really the same and we just name them differently. It's very similarly because that's just the way our brains are physically hardwired. And so that's why we keep trying to draw these parallels between the different lenses and, and saying, oh, maybe they really are the same lens. And depending upon what you call yourself professionally, you have different names for them, but really that's the same lens. The other thing we're playing around with, and this is getting stepping way, way back, is how knowing these different lenses gives you agency. Moving into a really complex world where we need problem solvers who can dip in and out of different fields, somehow they need to be able to share a framework. And I think that's what made us so excited when we were listening to you is you talk about things like pattern and structure in your book. Those are foundational pieces that form a framework, but then allow you to have agency and create what you want. Once you have that in science, you can apply it anywhere else. Once you know it in writing, you can apply it anywhere else. It gives you kind of a movable schema. And we were thinking this morning, like how, like what's a a practical application for the classroom? And so going back to my son, Xander, when you're stuck writing, if you think of your writing as being a system, add in new energy or matter or take energy and matter out, which is another way of saying, put in a character, take out a character, make the character do something different that's unexpected for the system and to change. It's a shortcut into, I don't really know what to do next. And then you pull back and like, oh, I really only have limited choices. I can either make it stable or changing and I can add something and take it away. Okay. Starting with that, what would I do? So Mark doesn't know, but he's just been speaking revision techniques, right? Absolutely. Or even just getting yourself started from nothing. You know, writers have to start from nothing. So there you are with a blank piece of paper asking yourself, okay, what am I going to do here? And then say, all right, I'll start with a pattern or I'll start with a structure or I'll start with something happening. And then I'll think about the cause of that thing happening and it'll be a cause effect. Or I think looking at these signs, one thing that got me excited on a completely separate note from just seeing where these two professional books overlap, I made a list in my notebook from the different chapters in your book of all these picture books that I think would be so much fun to write. (laughs) because I am now, I never really thought about trying to understand the world in this way. And it opened up for me in the same way, again, that Wondrous Words did. That was a a transformational book for me. And this book in that same way, I feel like will impact how I see things forever. And I'm just very grateful for that. And, you know, Mark and I are very careful um, to caution teachers not to grab a book and then immediately start looking for cross-cutting concepts because we really want to step out of the way the first time that a class hears 
one of your poems or reads a book and just let that transaction between the writers of the book and the children just happen. But there's so many opportunities to revisit books when you're talking more specifically about these concepts or about writing. And, you know, when Mark talks about how books either start with a system and change or start with a stable system and then there's a change. I always think about Charlotte's Web and the opening line is something like, where's Papa going with that axe? That's something different and something is going to be thrown into change because I'm sure that's not how every breakfast conversation starts. And so I wouldn't talk about that the first time I read that book, but if I wanted to introduce a new way to approach a piece of writing, I might revisit that with my class and say, let's see how E.B. White handled this. And I think that that's true in science as well. If I were bringing in a bag of fossils or we were watching a caterpillar spin a chrysalis, I don't know what the right verb is there, but I wouldn't want to deconstruct it moment by moment, but rather allow the child's wonder to just be present and to unfurl and then later to come back because there is something about being struck and moved by a text or by a scientific process that once you are able to experience the, I don't know, the only word I can think of right now is the sacredness or the wonder, the beauty of whatever it is. Learning about how it works is more interesting to you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The authentic experience of of life, really, you know, of the complete human in that, I don't know, just experiencing it for what it is. And I also think going back to some of your poems are so thoughtfully written. I mean, they all are, but it's because of the choices you've made Sort of compression is a word I picked up from your session at NCTE. The way that you choose words, the structure, the pattern, the imagery, all of those choices that relate to the cross-cutting concepts and writer's craft are why I come away with a really aesthetic response. Can, can I give an so, example? Sure. So I, I have seven words that, that you wrote, Amy, that just sit with me, and um, they're, that, they're that profound. Alive for an eye blank, forever dead calm. Yeah, but it's really, <laughs> it makes you think, it almost makes me cry when I read it. I mean, it's that powerful. Well, thank you. I I feel very lucky. One of the interesting things for me with Poems Our Teachers book was having all these poets in it and having the opportunity to read all of these poems by contemporary, you know, 55 or whatever it is, contemporary poets, and to see how every one of them and then the hundred children, how they do exactly what you're saying, Valerie, compress language so that in a small, a few words, you can be transported. That's the amazingness of writing. It made me think about the chapter in your book on scale, proportion, and quantity, and how you talk about the Goldilocks scale. Is it big or little or in the middle? And I was thinking a lot about children, how when you're little, there's a book by Charlotte Zolito called Over and Over. You may know it, Valerie, about a child not understanding how the year goes and says, you know, but what happens after Christmas? And then the mom says, oh, well, after Christmas, we celebrate a brand new year and we wear party hats and we have noisemakers and everybody stays up late. And But it goes through the whole year. What happens after New Year's? What happens after Valentine's Day? And this idea of children not understanding yet, just because of their limited time on earth, how the year works. But then in your book, it's the same about not understanding 
standing unit measurements. You know, I have three miles of flour I'm putting in the cake I'm baking. You know, when little, little children make up their own recipes and they have, you know, 200,000 pounds of butter in the pie or whatever. And so reading that, when you said that fluency in measurements is a goal that we have for young scientists, that they have an innate feel for quantities in units. And I think that's a lot true when we think about young writers too. Children will learn what a metaphor is or what repetition is, and then they use it in this like crazy way. You know, they go way overboard with the metaphor or, or, you know, the repetition is just like everything repeats. So it's an awkward use of something new because they don't yet have the fluency in knowing, is this metaphor too big or too little, or is it just right? They just don't have enough experience with these different craft techniques. So they go hot wild with them and then learn to pull back. And I think it's the same when I was reading your book about the measurements and kind of, you got to measure a lot of things all year long to start to understand what a centimeter is. I got to measure, 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 measure until it's sort of that scale sense settles into my mind. That's interesting. My, my child um, used to say the word lava hot. That was how he would describe heat. It was this lava hot. When I would think back literally, I was like, well, first, that's so hot, you know? And like you yeah. said, it's so over the top, but the point was well made. It's really hot, dad. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that whole idea about having comparisons and you naming in the book all of these picture books where not Nonfiction authors use comparisons to help readers, young readers, understand how scientific concepts fit into the world, that you can compare it to something you already know. You know, if I can move more toward the language that you started to refer to and marked it to with Lava Hot and, and the metaphors, one of the things that's so much fun for us is to recognize how the cross-cutting concepts whisper and shout in our language. And, you know, we were so excited. Can you read that great fossil line again, Mark? Because we thought, wow, this shouts scale. Live for an eye blink, forever dead calm. You know, you chose those words so carefully to communicate scale of a fossil. What we also started to realize is how our daily use of language shouts cross-cutting concepts or whispers it. I was saying one of my favorite things to realize is I went into Mark's office. I was so mad about something. And I said to him, Mark, can I vent? And I said, don't transfer your negative energy into this. <laughs> and then we just started playing with it. And in our book, we have a lot of, uh, we have a list in almost every chapter of some of our favorite examples of how we can think about language using the cross-cutting concept. So, so I read a lot of those to my husband, the scientist <laughs> last night, and he was laughing so hard, especially this one. The word or phrase is, I need to lose weight. And the reference to energy is, I need to get rid of potential energy. <laughs> we just had a good laugh about that. But the whole list of those, it really, those lists, I think, help somebody who doesn't already or naturally think in scientific terms say, oh, oh, I'm spinning my wheels. I'm wasting energy. I'm just looking at the chart here. I'm procrastinating. I haven't found my activation energy. It's interesting to see how many of these cross-cutting concepts do seep into our everyday language and that we naturally do think this way. We just don't know that it's scientific. Well, exactly. I think it, as Mark said earlier, we all think this way and different fields have come up with language to describe it. But really, we're all trying to describe the same thing. That would be a good book. Every chapter could be like thinking like a scientist, thinking, reading the world like a writer, reading the world like an artist, reading the world like an anthropologist, reading the world like a chef, reading Let's the world like a... on board. <laughs> so everybody could write a chapter, but it would be really interesting because it then... It would be really interesting. ...and see what are the, what are the cross-cutting concepts of life. 
My thanks to Amy, Mark, and Valerie for their time today. If you'd like to know more about both books, Poems Are Teachers is written by Amy Ludwig Vanderwater, and Sharing Books, Talking Science is written by Mark Lubkowitz and Valerie Bong Jensen. Visit Heinemann.com for more on both books, where you can listen to podcasts about both books from the authors and read sample chapters and watch videos from them. If you'd like to connect with Heinemann further, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as our various Facebook groups. Plus, you can get a daily teacher tip right on your phone directly from Heinemann Authors by downloading the Heinemann Teacher Tip app. All this and more on Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.